Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Oh, hey there. Glad you came back for more. I have a feeling you're going to enjoy today's episode as well. On today's second episode of Brand the Interpreter, we have Virginia Valencia from Interpretrain. Virginia Valencia is a professional psychologist and a federally certified court interpreter. She became an interpreter in 2003 and has since worked in the fields of legal, medical, and conference interpretation. She holds a combined certificate in translation and interpretation studies from Hunter College and is certified approved by the Superior Courts of New Jersey, New York, and California. In 2012, Virginia and her husband, Brad Wilk, founded Interpretring. Their educational company offers game-driven workshops and user-friendly multimedia training tools for interpreters of all levels to further improve their professional skills. Drawing from her background in psychology, her classes and training materials offer dynamic games and drills to excel in different modes of interpretation, acquire new vocabulary, and learn the proper protocol to behave in court. She currently lives in California where she teaches, develops new materials, and works as an interpreter. Without further ado, here's Virginia Valencia. Virginia, thank you for being here today. Tell us about Virginia Valencia. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, a little bit about me. My mother's Cuban. My father is Colombian. I come from a family of teachers. Believe it or not, I'm the third generation teacher in my family. My maternal grandparents were both teachers. My parents are both teachers. I have a lot of uncles and aunts on both sides. So it's a really organic thing for me. I actually began teaching pretty early in the sense that I had this uh, one teacher, I think I was in fourth grade in elementary school, and I was one of those students who was very talkative and kind of disruptive in class because I would finish what I needed to do quickly and I would start distracting everybody else. And I had this one teacher who was really smart, Tomasa, and she just started making me her helper. And she's like, okay, what we're going to do is once you get done with your homework, once you get done with what you have to do, I want you to go look around the room, see who's still working, ask them if they need your help, and then you're going to be my helper. And that pretty much became the moment I fell in love with teaching. Um, I just really loved explaining things to people. And I just got excited when I saw people learning. And it just kind of got bit by the teaching bug pretty early in that way. Then my mother came to Florida to uh, study and we all followed. Uh, The whole family came with her. And um, that's how I learned English uh, during those four years. And then we went back to Colombia and um, I graduated as a psychologist. I started practicing psychology and I realized it really was not for me. It was very painful for me to hear people's um, life stories. And there's a great sense of urgency that people have when they come to a therapist. And it just felt like a big weight on my shoulders. I was having nightmares. I wasn't able to sleep. It was very, very hard for me. I finally decided to graduate uh, from psychology and to finish my internship. It was a one-year internship. But I definitely realized, you know, this isn't for me. I I can't do this for a living. So then I came to New York to pursue acting. It had been my childhood passion to be an actress. Theater actress. you, uh, Virginia? Ah, I'd rather not say. No, (laughs) (laughs) I won't give dates. Okay. Um, I was, at this point, I was 27. 
And, uh, and I went to New York to study acting and pursue theater acting, which is, was my passion. And, uh, and I was having a blast and it was really, really nice. But of course, it wasn't paying the bills. And um, it was either interpreting or waitressing. You know, most actors have to have uh, a side gig. And, um, and I started getting into interpreting and so many doors started opening up for me. And I started falling in love with it. Um, because what drove me to study psychology was, you know, I wanted to serve people and I wanted to help, but it became a little paralyzing. I I felt like there was such responsibility on my shoulders when I was, um, serving as a, as as a psychologist, whereas with interpreting and particularly court interpreting, the doors just started opening up for me. I felt like if I did my job right, I wouldn't be affecting the outcome. It was up to the judge. It was up to how good the attorney was. Or in pro se cases, you know, how good people are at representing themselves. So it felt really good to be a conduit. Like I would go home and I wouldn't feel like I had all this weight on my shoulders. I, I would feel like, great, I helped out, but I'm, I can sleep at night. <laughs> I'm not having nightmares. Let's, so let's the, go back a little bit, uh, Virginia, to absolutely. that moment where you make the decision to become an interpreter. Because it sounds like you went straight into court interpreting. Am I correct? I started doing depositions. I had done a little bit of conference interpretation in my university while I was studying psychology. We had people visiting. I also forgot to mention that my mother served the U.S. State Department as an interpreter when she was young. And then she was a conference interpreter. So I was kind of surrounded by that. I was kind of surrounded by conference interpretation. Um, She was also a professor, but her side gig was interpreting. And I was kind of exposed to it at a very young age. And then when I was in college, for some reason, when I was studying psychology, I, I got this urge to interpret and I would take audiobooks and I would practice simultaneous interpretation. I mean, with no rhyme or reason, I just kind of felt like that's something that could help me in the future. So I started doing simultaneous interpretation for myself. And then it turns out that through my professors in the university, uh, when I was studying psychology, I would be given gigs to do both translations and interpret at conferences. So it kind of worked out for me in that way. So when I came to New York, I already had a little bit of experience under my belt. I had never done anything legal. And I just kind of felt like, you know, this is this is better than waitressing. Honestly, it was pretty much that, I have to say. There wasn't much more to it than I just really felt like, well, I'm bilingual and let me take let me get this done. Right. Um, I went online, I offered my resume and I talked about my experience and whatnot, and I got um offered the first gig, which was a deposition. And I showed up to the deposition and I didn't have a pen with me. I didn't have a notepad. I was told to arrive at 10. I arrived at 10 on the dot, not early. When I, was, when I arrived, they were waiting for me. I sat down and they saw that I had nothing to write with. And, you know, they began, they began and then I think the first question was, you know, what's your name to the deponent? And uh, he answered. And then I said, uh, he says his name is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the attorney kind of gave me a crash course. She was very irritated. They could tell, you know, she was like, oh, my God, here we go. One of those doesn't know what the, she's doing. So she passed me a legal pad and a pen and she's like, here, take notes when you hear him talking. And then when he speaks, whatever you say, you're going to say it like he said it. So if he says I, you're going to say I. So I pretty much stumbled through that depot and I'm sure everybody was very frustrated with me. And I walked out of there realizing like, wow, this is a real career. Like I should study this. This is not just like I'm bilingual. I can do this because I can pretty much confidently say that I was pretty terrible at it that first time. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. Yes. So, so then I went into Hunter College and I studied it. And as I was studying, I was also doing acting and um, I was also doing depots. I started doing depositions while I was studying at Hunter College and I had really good professors who would, you know, take me under their wing and, and give me gigs with the New York uh, Police Department and conference interpretation. And I started kind of just working it. And that's when I fell in love with it, when I started learning it through Hunter College and then also seeing the impact I could make, seeing the, the way I could help people. And it just, it was really an organic fit for me, I felt. I had to work hard at, um, like everybody, you know, learning how to take good notes and learning how to develop my memory and learning how to speak quickly in a simultaneous mode and all the things that involve, you know, skill building and vocabulary building. I can't say, you know, I was a natural at the beginning. No, I, I had to work at it. 
but it felt emotionally like a very organic fit for me. Like I, I felt like I was helping people, but it wasn't stressful. I felt like I was making a big difference in people's lives, but it wasn't up to me what the outcome was if I was doing my job right. And it just really felt good. Like if I felt useful. And then the doors of interpretation started opening up for me. I became certified uh, by the state of New York and then approved, New Jersey approves by the state of New Jersey. And I got a job in New Jersey. And I basically started realizing that acting wasn't going to pay the bills and that I was feeling pretty passionate about interpreting, that I was getting a kick out of it. And that's when I decided to kind of focus on interpretation. I think a common theme that I get a lot when I talk to interpreters is this desire to help others. I love the fact that you mentioned that you, you just had this this desire to help and quickly figured out that interpreting could absolutely fill that need. I think that at the heart of interpreting is the desire to serve. And if you have that, if, if in your heart you enjoy serving in this capacity, because of course there's so many different ways to serve, but if it's a right emotional fit for you, even though it's stressful, even though it does, you know, test your knowledge and, your, and, and it requires you to constantly be researching and never be complacent and you have to be on your toes. But if, if you're emotionally kind of equipped for that and in your heart you really enjoy serving others, you will put the, the effort in and you, and you will enjoy it and you will become a great interpreter. And you might be equipped with like all of the cognitive tools that you need to be an interpreter. But if in your heart, you really don't serve, you don't enjoy serving people in that capacity, then you're never truly going to be a good interpreter because at the heart of it, it has to be the desire to help others. Virginia, now fast forward, you were working as an interpreter, you did your training. At what moment do you have the inspiration to create your company? So I kind of started getting an itch the first time I started preparing for a test. I basically um, was already studying at Hunter College, so I had been introduced to different materials. You know, I am very grateful to all the material that existed out there, and I was so happy to be able to, to, to get the practice under my belt. But coming from psychology, I did start getting an itch of what I felt would have been more efficient for me, learning-wise. You know, when you come from a background of psychology and having been a teacher as well, I had taught while I was studying psychology, I was teaching in Berlitz. I was a language instructor. So because of those two specific credentials in my background, I was thinking of like, how can I make myself learn this vocabulary quicker? How can I make myself progressively build my skills? And I basically started doing things on my own. Like I started creating my flashcards. I used to buy these index cards that have a little hole in them. And then I would take shower rings and I would put them through the holes. And I had like, you know, my little flashcard sets for uh, injuries and my flashcard set for criminal terms. And I had like different sets and I would, while I was riding the train, I would kind of go through the flashcards, turn the vocab because it was frustrating to me how I would start doing a practice and then I would kind of stumble upon words that I didn't know. So I knew that I was kind of finally getting into a rhythm, finally like getting to the skill building, good stuff, you know, to the juicy stuff. And then I would stumble upon a word they didn't know and kind of like get thrown off. So I knew that one of the things that needed to happen is I wanted to be able to drill the vocabulary up front. So when I faced the practice, that wouldn't be an issue. So that was one of the things that I kind of organically started creating my own flashcards. Um, the second thing was that when it came to the notes, I started realizing that the text that I was working with for consecutive interpretation, note-taking for consecutive interpretation... I kind of understood the concepts or I did understand the concepts, but I didn't see any change in my notes. I didn't see that my notes were transformed by understanding the concepts. So I also came uh, at it from an angle of, okay, so what exercises need to happen so this becomes automatic? So I don't even have to think about it. So it pours out of my fingertips. And I started creating exercises for that and kind of teaching workshops around that. And then when I was preparing for the federal exam, then it, everything just really came together where I was just feeling that, you know, this is, this is the material I would like to have. This is the, so I basically started creating the material I wanted to have to study because I couldn't find something that would drill the vocabulary on its own. I couldn't find something that would, you know, show me skill building little by little. So that's when I started working on creating the material I wish I had had. Basically, the first thing that came about was the manual, the note-taking manual. And 
Um, after that, I started working on um, interpreting laboratories. So I was working in Essex County in Newark. And I used to be the head of the mentorship program. We had an internship and I, and I was uh, mentoring uh, two different groups. I had uh, two different periods. Through that program, they kind of would structure what the students need to, needed to go through. The university wanted to see, kind of check mark, have they done this type of case? Have they, have they witnessed that type of case? Have they shadowed that type of case? And with that list that that, that, that university created, I started compiling real court cases. And I started seeing, okay, well, this sounds like a pretty solid list of things that people should experience as interpreters. These are kind of like all the cases that you should go through. I started compiling those transcripts and then I started taking the vocabulary out of them and creating ways to drill the vocabulary. And then what I was really, really passionate about is the three-step method in which you kind of, you know, drill the vocabulary up front. And we have all kinds of audiovisual, visual, uh, more kinesthetic exercises. So we really want to kind of bombard you from different angles because I know that's what's effective. When your brain receives information through different tasks, you're more likely to uh, be able to uh, store that information and retrieve it more readily as if you're just doing it from one path. So that was the first step get the vocabulary out of the way, learn it by heart. The second step, I also wanted to be more skill building where it would be like slowly the first time you did a practice, it was at a slower pace. And then you could do the practice at a faster pace. Um, so that's something I was very passionate about. And also to see progression in the chunks in the consecutive. So at the beginning of the program, I wanted students to have smaller chunks. And as they progress, they handle longer and longer chunks. And then the final step, which was also... I was kind of frustrating to me when I was studying, which was I would do a practice and then I'd be like, okay, well, I don't know if I passed or not. (laughs) What grade would I have gotten? Was that a 60? Was that a 98? Like, I don't know. Like there's no final grade. So I did want people to be able to grade themselves. I wanted people to be able to have a numerical score and a very clear feedback as to how you would have done it if that had been a test. So I started gathering the material, and um, it was a really long process, I have to admit. It it took many, many years, and I was really lucky because I feel, it's a little hocus-pocusy to say this, but I really feel like the universe has kind of taken care of my content, meaning whenever I'm feeling like, oh my God, this is bigger than me, I don't know if I can do this somebody will show up miraculously and say, let me help you out with that. So the first person to do that was my mother, who uh, is a PhD linguist, and as I mentioned, um, has served as an interpreter. And she was like, let me be your proofreader. And I was just so grateful for that. After that, we had Virginia Benmemen, who's a published author, and she has her own uh, English-Spanish court bilingual uh, dictionary. And after that, it was another colleague of mine. So I had all these people just kind of show up and say, let me help you. And that was amazing. Then when the business, when we, when I, it finally started to become a business, I started feeling really overwhelmed with all of the business aspect of it because I'm the, I'm a teacher at heart and I'm an interpreter at heart. I've really no idea of business. I mean, I'm learning, but I'm really not a business person, a business savvy person at heart. And my husband started seeing, Brad Wilk, my husband started seeing that I was struggling with that. And he's like, let me help you out with that. And uh, when we were about to launch, again, it was like, okay, so um, how do we set up all this thing? What chapters go where? And what kind of uh, warm up should we get? And then uh, Athena Matilski shows up out of the blue and she's like, I can help you guys with that. So it, it has really been a labor of love and it has really become so much bigger than myself. And it has been really humbling to see so many people come together and push this thing forward. And I just truly feel very blessed to be able to, to count on all these people. And that we're really so pr- proud of the, of the result. Absolutely. No, I think that it it absolutely makes a big difference when you see your tribe from the connections that you begin to make in the relationships that you make throughout the years. And then that moment that you are ready to try on something new that your tribe comes through to help you, you know, make that next step and really push you through. So that's a beautiful story, Virginia, that they all came through with different aspects. 
Thank you. And let me just, I do want to give a shout out to Frances Ontoria because she was like the first non-family member <laughs> who was like, let me help you. And literally with asking nothing in return, just out of the kindness of her heart. And she was the first person who was not related to me, who was like, this is good stuff. You've got something really, really special here. And it came at a point where I was, I must say, very close to giving up. I was... Um, feeling overwhelmed. I was thinking like, who am I? Who do I think I am? How, how do I think I could pull off this massive thing? There's so much work to be done. And, and, and how could I have thought that I was going to be able to get this done? And she just kind of, Francis just kind of came and just said, let me check your stuff out. Let me, let me proof your stuff, proofread your stuff. And, and it just gave me so much confidence and so much motivation. And I truly, truly believe that if it had not been for her, I would have thrown in the towel. Thank you so much for having come in and disrupt that imposter syndrome mentality that I think we all have at some point, because without that, we would not have Virginia Valencia. So thank you, Francis. Yeah. And you know, it's so important what, you, what you've touched upon. I think that so many interpreters have this really harsh inner critic that is just paralyzing and it can really be something that that is incredibly detrimental to your career and to your emotional well-being when you listen to that inner voice so i do encourage anybody who's listening to this and identifies with that little tasmanian devil that you have living inside of you telling you you know you're not good enough you're never going to be able to get this done this is impossible to know that that's not true to to be kind to yourself to be generous with yourself to remember that every single person whom you admire started out as a beginner didn't give up and and you can do it it's just a matter of work don't be afraid of work it's just a matter of being persistent and, and you can absolutely make your wildest dreams come true in this profession. It's just a matter of putting in the time and effort. But don't give in to that horrible, cruel creature that you have living inside your brain telling you that, it, that it's not doable, that you don't deserve it, that you're not going to be able to make it happen. They say that the definition of courage is feeling that fear and doing it anyway, right? Oh, absolutely. And also, I think that, you know, um, it can turn into something different with time. That same sense of, um, I mean, I've heard many actors talk about it and experienced actors talk about the butterflies in the stomach before going on stage and how with time that turns into an awareness of respect for the audience. So it doesn't have to be paralyzing fear. It just becomes a clarity of what I'm doing is important. And I hold it in such high esteem that that's what I'm feeling right now. And I think that I have felt that transition in my life. So instead of feeling overwhelmed by what I don't know or what, what I still have ahead to accomplish, I've learned to embrace the journey and, and be uh, okay with the fact that I have a lot to learn and enjoy the process because we're never, ever going to be finished with our education as interpreters. So you might as well enjoy the ride. Might as well enjoy it. I think Brene Brown shared at one point that she changed the mentality of um, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling nervous to I'm feeling excited, I'm feeling excited, which completely changes her demeanor. And it's no I longer, like you know, this, this fear-based emotion. Now it's, you know, a, a higher energy emotion. She's feeling excited. So just the fact that she's repeating that completely changes her demeanor before she goes on stage. Yeah, I like that a lot. Definitely. I'm going to borrow that. <laughs> Sure, she's like fine with that. Lot. It's beautiful. What inspires you, you feel now, every day to get up and do the things that you do? What is the inspiration behind it? Well, I really think we are junkies. People who want to serve are junkies for gratitude. And um, I think that there's two um, sources from where that gratitude comes. And first is the people I serve in court knowing that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're saying thank you. It doesn't necessarily have to be that they are even acknowledging, uh, acknowledging you sometimes. Sometimes the people we serve in court are so overwhelmed with the process they're going through that they don't even have the whereabout to, to the wherewithal mentally to say thank you. But knowing that, that you, know, you, you, you helped somebody uh, through a process that if your service had not been what it should be, they might have walked out of there not knowing what's going on. They might have not been able to voice what they needed to voice clearly. Um, they might have walked out of there completely lost. 
and also the course not being able to understand uh, their story or what they needed to say, um, knowing that I can that I can help out and again just be a conduit to that is incredibly rewarding for me. And and when I do get the thank yous, it does mean a lot to me. Both you know, any, from anywhere, from judges, from attorneys, from court users, it it really feeds my soul. And I think I am kind of a junkie for that. Secondly, when people reach out to me regarding my material or my classes and they're grateful and they're happy and they're excited and they're proud of what they've accomplished, that just means the world to me. I mean, that never gets old. That never, ever, ever gets old. Mm -hmm. So if I wake up one morning and I have a cold and I'm feeling like I don't really want to do this and I want to stay in bed, that's what I think gets me out of bed, that I'm a junkie for that feeling. We we touched a little bit earlier about the imposter syndrome. I'd I'd like to get a little bit deeper into that. So what does Virginia do when she feels that fear-based emotion, when you feel the fear, when you uh, have the limiting beliefs um, or the doubts, what do you do personally to be able to overcome those? Oh my God, so many things. Um, I think a, a good old chat with a friend goes a long way. Um, and, and that's why it's so important to surround yourself by supportive people. Um, uh, you know, being able to reach out to someone and let them know what's going on. If you don't have that resource, uh, breathing, breathing is just incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, I was doing this, uh, criminal case and, um, there was this ex-convict talking about this breathing uh, technique that absolutely changed his life, and it's uh, it's box called box breathing, where you inhale for four seconds, you hold it for four seconds, you exhale for four seconds, and then you hold it for four seconds. So it kind of forms a little box. If you think about the inhale as a line going up, the holding your breath as a as a horizontal line, the exhale as a line going down, and then this uh, second holding your breath as another horizontal line, it forms like a little box. And he would talk about how whenever, because he had rage issues, and whenever he had rage issues, he would do that um, box breathing technique for four boxes. And that's miraculous. Breathing is miraculous, especially if you're about to start a case and you can sense it. If you can feel that you're going to get nervous and that you're not going to be able to think clearly, box breathing is just miraculous. And then when it's, so it's, if it's happening when it's in my, you know, outside of court, when, it, when I'm about to teach a course or when I'm approaching a new task, a new project that I find is really massive, just be kind to yourself, whether it's, you know, whatever gets you happy. If it's dancing, do that. If it's walking, do that. Just be really, really, really good to yourself. And then finally, it sounds really corny, but <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> Neurolinguistic programming is incredibly powerful. So when you get into those moments, and I can definitely say I do when I'm thinking I'm not good enough. Oh my God, who do I think I am? This is not going to happen. This is, you're going to fall flat on your face. This is ridiculous. Once I see that that inner critic has become, or the imposter, as you call it, has become unmanageable, I actually sometimes am in the, I'm in the car and I'll talk to myself in a very kind way. And um, I had this therapist who used to suggest talking to yourself as if you were soothing your own child. So like if you were a child and you saw your kid freaking out about going to school today, what would you say to that child? So um, sometimes I'll talk to myself in the car, as crazy as that sounds, and I'll be kind to myself and I'll say, you're doing a great job. Uh, you've accomplished so much. You can do this. Um, this, is, this, is, this is something that's completely within your power and you're not alone. You know, there's, the universe is going to take care of you and there are things that are going to fall into place to help you. You're, you're reaching people. This is important. You can do this. And, and try to counteract that inner voice a little bit. This is when like, things get really, really bad. Like when the blank hits the fan, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, the last, my last resort is, I must say, as corny as it sounds, talking to myself in a kind fashion as if I were soothing my inner child. And that helps. It sounds really corny, but once you talk to yourself out loud, it kind of quiets down that inner voice and, and it gives you another perspective. I was listening not too long ago um, to another podcast and, and the guest on the show there was talking about how it really, what it is, is uh, changing the words. You're distracting your own self 
from continuing down that rabbit hole. So uh, I don't think it sounds corny at all. I think that's exactly what's going on is you're just, you're changing the channel per se, right? So instead oh, absolutely. of continuing to go down the fear path, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know if I prepared enough and, you know, starting to feel it physically in your body, you make that change, that switch to whatever that may be. If it's, you know, the breathing technique and focusing on your breathing or positive affirmations for yourself, or just changing what you think you're feeling to, like Brene Brown said, um, I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling excited. I think it, you're just, what we're doing is changing the channel. So no, that's, I think that's great. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, what, what, um, what really is incredibly powerful as well when we're interpreting is if you can ask for what you need. So there are days that I feel like I'm on fire and I'm sure everyone experiences this and I'm like, I got this. And you can take really long chunks, chunks it can sec and people can be going fast and you can keep up. And then there are other days, whether you're tired or depressed or whatever the reason may be, you may have a cold or whatever it is and you feel like you can't, your chunks have to be much shorter, then you should definitely ask for that. Um, again, going back to Frances Ontoria, or one thing that she said to me, I used to team interpret with her and she was just so amazing. And one thing she said to me is that it's not our jobs to look good. It's our jobs to be faithful. So if you need a repetition, you need a repetition. If you need people to slow down, so be it. If you need people to uh, speak in shorter chunks, you interrupt them. You know, give yourself what you need so you can be accurate and everything else should fall by the wayside. Nothing else should really matter but that. And then when it comes to teaching or performing in public, people are very receptive to when you're vulnerable and open. So, you know, when you make a mistake and saying, oh my goodness, making a joke out of it, or oh my God, I haven't had my cup of coffee yet, or oh my God, you guys, I'm so nervous. People respond incredibly compassionately when you let them know that, you know, you're vulnerable because we are all, we all are. And we're putting, sometimes uh, putting up this front that we're indestructible or that we know everything, but we, people respond really well when, you, when you're open and honest about, you know, your weaknesses or your needs. I totally agree. I think that's sound advice that perhaps a lot of us may not necessarily get from school. And um, that's stuff that we encounter once we're out on the job. So thank you for sharing that for anyone out there that's just beginning, um, or even if you're seasoned, and if it's not something you're currently trying, uh, we do all have those bad days, right? We're, we're not on our A game per se. And so absolutely being able to voice that and be vulnerable, I think is great advice. Virginia, what would you say has been your biggest challenge or your biggest roadblock during your career? Oh my goodness, I would have to think about that. I don't know. I I really have found that a lot of the challenges that I originally found became my greatest opportunities. Um, Like my frustration, as I mentioned earlier, with the type of materials I wish I, I, I could count on became this opportunity to develop these materials. I don't know. I really, really feel like, yeah, I I would say that challenges became opportunities for me, but I also do have to honestly say that maybe the biggest challenge is myself. Maybe it is my Mm self-talk. It is when I'm, when I'm afraid to do things and I'm afraid. And I think uh, my husband has recognized that a little bit in me. Um, A pattern that I have is I'll work on a material. I'll work on it really hard on a project. And when it's about to launch, I'll start saying, no, we need to do this and we need to fix that. And we need to, uh, and I want to kind of perpetuate (laughs) the the cleaning up process. Um, And he kind of spots it and he's like, no, let's, let's, let's launch now. And if we want to fix something, and that often happens, you know, we launch and then we get feedback and then we realize, yeah, this does need more work or you know what? No, this is perfect. But I think so many interpreters, we can be such perfectionists to a fault, to a, to a place where we are kind of paralyzed. And, and I do notice that pattern in myself, just when, when things are getting close to launching and being published, I want to just polish up a storm and, and, and kind of uh, perpetuate and, and hold in an almost published state eternally. So I don't have to face the criticism. I guess I have to honestly say what scares me most, and I'm, I hope people can identify with this, is the criticism. And, and um, once you realize that there's always going to be that, that you're going to have people who are grateful and happy and open and, and, and so 
receptive to your work. And then there's going to be a small percentage who is going to find something to complain about. And then once you kind of realize that and you go, oh, well, if it's going to happen anyway and there's nothing I can do to stop that, I might as well just go for it. So little by little, I'm not saying I have yet mastered this, but little by little, by learning to expect criticism or straight out rejection, thankfully we have had a very good reception. People have been really good to us, but that's always going to be part of what happens. That's never going to go away. So once you kind of look at it in the face and you say, you know what, I'm not going to be able to make everyone happy anyway. I might as well go for it and let the chips fall where they may. It's never as bad as you thought in your head. The monsters that we have in our head are incredibly powerful and scary and and just demoralizing, but the reality never comes close to that fear. So I would say definitely that the, the fear of failure, the fear of criticism has been something that I have had to fight and continue to fight. And I encourage the people out there to do the same, whether it's you're afraid of the jurors who speak Spanish in court and might scrutinize your work, or whether you're a teacher and are worried about any negative feedback, or whether you want to do something new, but you're afraid of what's going to happen and who's going to reject it. Just know that there will always be someone who's going to reject it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once I think you it- kind of make your pieces with that, it's like, okay, well, since I can't help that, I might as well go for what I want. Right. It's going to be what it's going to be. And whenever we uh, put ourselves out there to the entire world, especially, you know, there's always going to be that case. We tend to want to focus on that one particular case. At least that's what I see on a lot of people that uh, a lot of influencers, a lot of people that are out there. Sometimes they go back and say, why is it that I always have 10 people that say something positive and one person that'll say something negative. And I stick to that one negative comment. I play it over and over and over when I have 10 other people or more saying all this positivity. Absolutely. And, And also being able to look at criticism for what it has to offer. Sometimes people will be incredibly, they can even be harsh and cruel, but within that, you will find something constructive if you, if you look. So it's kind of not becoming deaf to criticism and saying, okay, so is there anything I can really take out of this comment to improve? If the answer is yes, okay, let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's find a way to make this better. And, and one of the things I'm really, really proud about in interpret training is that we're constantly, you know, uh, changing things and, and, and find somebody points out, you know, you know, this other expression, I like to say it better like this. And then we go in and we change it or we find, okay, this other tool would make it much easier for the students. Then we do that. So it's kind of knowing, okay, this person has this valuable thing to say, let me listen. Or you know what? There's nothing but nastiness in there. (laughs) There's nothing I can get out of this. So let me just consider like, um, oh, you're the one. Okay. Yeah. I had to take stock of who was the one. Now I've discovered you're the one. Okay, good. Now we I, know who it is. Let's keep going. <laughs> there had to be one and you're, compl- you're, you're complying with that function. Okay, great. We've identified you. Now we can proceed. No, I love that. I think that is uh, absolutely sound advice for all of us. Absolutely. Virginia, what do you feel has helped you most to take your career to the next level? I think it's undou- undoubtedly the people around me. I, I, I have felt so supported by my husband, by my mother, by my colleagues, um, by my friends, even those who are not interpreters to, to just nudge me along when I'm, when I'm feeling, you know, um, hopeless. Um, I think it's incredibly important to surround yourself uh, with people who push you, with people who support you, who share your dream, who put in the time and effort um, to help you. And there, by that same token, I think it's very important to do the same. I think it's very important to create relationships in which you are constantly trying to spot, you know, how can I support this person right now? What does this person need from me right now? Uh, what is their vision for themselves? Is there anything I can do to make their lives a little easier or to push them along? So I would definitely say a strong network of support is the biggest asset you can have. What advice would you give an up-and-coming interpreter? I would say uh, be bold, but be thorough. Don't be afraid to, to, to go for it, but also back it up with work, back it up with, with research, back it up with, with practice. But don't be paralyzed because of making mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. Even, even seasoned interpreters make mistakes. And then also, um, once you know your code of ethics and you understand, uh, for example, Na- Najit's eighth canon, 
it's so freeing because it lets you just say up front what mistake you made and correct it on the record. So it takes off that pressure of I have to be perfect. And all of a sudden, there's room for the interpreter needs to correct herself. And there's room for, you know, the original interpretation was this, the accurate interpretation was that. So once you know proper protocol to correct yourself, there really shouldn't be that much fear to go for it. If you spot a mistake, correct it. But yeah, be bold, but back it up with work. Back it up with, with being thorough. Is there anything you think you would tell young Virginia Valencia? Oh my goodness. I don't know if she would listen. (laughs) (laughs) I often hear people when they're asked this question say that they would say it's going to be all right. And I think that holds so much truth. Um, I think that uh, there can be so much anxiety around the unknown and I really wish I could have had that feeling that it's going to be okay, that it's going to work out. There was a time in my life where I thought if I don't make it as an actor, if I don't make it as a stage actor, that's failure. Or you have these ideas of what your life is supposed to look like. But if you're willing to trust that it's going to work out, if you're willing to trust that if you work hard and you try to put your best foot forward and you try to put good things out into the world, it usually tends to work out, you know? I think you can relax a little bit more and, and not be so, so anxious. So if I could travel in time and talk to myself and have myself listen, it would be, it's going to be okay. Just trust the process and, and don't be so stubborn as to think it only, this is the, this is the only way things can work out. Life will surprise you and it, it can, it can work out 20 times better than you even envisioned it. If you just, open yourself up to it. Great advice, Virginia, because if we really look back at the story that you just told, everything in your trajectory ties together. So you have a psychology background, you were going to school for acting, uh, you were surrounded by teachers and, and teaching. At a young age, you had the opportunity to travel and experience different cultures. And here you are now, given this all away, every experience that you've had has helped you to where you're, you are today. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, absolutely. It is such a combination of my experiences. I, I really feel like you have this idea of uh, where things should go and how life should look. And then it kind of turns out that you look back and everything that I learned from each one of those experiences, I still put into practice today. There's nothing in my, you know, you could say, well, she's a failed psychologist because she doesn't practice psychology or she's a failed actor because she doesn't practice acting. But I find that that those things absolutely nourish who I am as a teacher and who I am as an interpreter. You know, conveying the inflection, conveying the tone requires a little bit of acting. Being in front of a group requires acting. Teaching and creating material requires me to think as a psychologist and how does the brain work and how we learn and how can I make a material that is kind of user-friendly for the way our brain processes information. So everything throughout my life, I definitely think, as you mentioned, having gone at 10 years old to Gainesville, Florida, which is such a diverse place culturally and linguistically, and learning that from a very early age, I think made a very, very big impact on me. Uh, Even though my parents were always trying to read me poetry from different countries in Africa and and we had an encyclopedia with, you know, different pictures of different uh, traditional uh, uh, clothes from different countries and they were trying to make us very respectful of other cultures. Nothing beats living in a place where your neighbor on one side is from Cameroon and on the other side, they're from Germany and underneath you, somebody's from Israel in the, the first floor beneath yours. And at school, everybody, you know, potluck day is this one takes, you know, uh, their, their juca <laughs> dish, you know, and it, it just at a very young age just made me fall in love with the different cultures and made me really respect how awesome our differences are and how much they should be celebrated. And yet at the same time, how similar we are, how we're all just, you know, we have different ways of expressing and different ways of of manifesting those same human feelings, but we're all just pretty much vulnerable and looking for love and having dreams and and having had that experience and that exposure at, at that young age really, really made me appreciate that 
human aspect. And I really think that it, it goes into what I am as an interpreter as well. For sure. And for our listeners out there that are thinking how this path of yours, if you're just starting, if it's truly your calling or what kind of experience do you bring to the table or you have to have nothing but interpreting experience or uh, language specialties, you can see how it all ties together. All your background will give you all the tools that you need. And there was a reason why you were involved in whatever it was you, you were involved in the past to be able to help you with your current projects. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why there really is no reason why you should look down on anybody as a fellow interpreter. Because even if it's someone who's their first day, let's say somebody comes into court, they just passed the exam, it's the first day they're in court, and they're right alongside of you. That person might have a grandmother who's from a small town of, this, of whatever country you're interpreting uh, you know, the court user is going to need interpreting services for, and that person might know certain sayings and certain words that you don't, or someone might have had a background in being a carpenter, and it just so happens that this is a lawsuit related to a place where they make uh, furniture, and they know things you don't know. <laughs> so there's no, um, there's really no one, or there's no background that doesn't count for this profession. No matter what you've done in the past, what experiences you've had, you can bet your butt that, some, that, some, that something's going to show up, that somehow there's going to be that need for that vocabulary unit or for that particular understanding of that cultural expression or whatever it may be. Virginia, what's next for interpreting? Well, we're super excited because um, we are partnering with the Santa Cruz Department of Education, and we're going to be launching a program that begins in August for people who are bilingual and want to become interpreters. So we're basically going to take them by the hand, first through understanding what interpretation is, then through courses to get their consecutive interpretation um, techniques and symbols to the highest level that possibly can go. And then we start working with laboratories, with interpreting laboratories. And then finally, at the end of the program, we match them up with agencies and we match them up with job opportunities. So it's basically open to anybody who uh, is bilingual, whether they are a young adult or uh, an older person who's trying to pursue this as a second career. But it's basically a program that includes many elements that we have previously published. So that is exciting. We're also going to be launching uh, an ethics program where we uh, filmed different court case scenarios and kind of an interpreter doing things with proper protocol and then an interpreter doing that exact same court scenario, whether they're just really messing it up. <laughs> and then you were supposed to watch the videos and kind of say, okay, was this proper protocol? Was it not? Why was it? So that's another course that we have coming up. And then finally, we're also working on an app that will allow people to voice record themselves uh, much, much faster and make it much, much more simple uh, for our labs. And then uh, we, we plan on launching it initially with that, with that capability. And then for the a little bit farther future, we're also working on giving them all the interpretations to all the labs. So you can actually listen to uh, uh, an experienced interpreter, how they would interpret that. And then finally, the app is also going to have samples of notes. And we have a bunch of other projects. (laughs) It's really crazy. We, We tend to develop things a little bit circularly. We don't move in a line. We tend to have several things happening at once. And then it's just a matter of, okay, which one are we going to push next to launch out? But there's always, there always seems to be so much happening. Initially, it was me kind of saying, okay, I want to do this. I want to do that. (laughs) Now it's very much my husband going, okay, there's a need in the market for this. Let's push this. (laughs) So there's always so much going on. We're we're, we're excited. We have a a few new projects that are going to be um, launching this year. So exciting. Is there anything aside from all the good stuff that you just gave us, Virginia, that you would like our listeners to walk away with from this episode? I think it's just a matter of going for your dreams. I really, really do think that um, what what makes uh, Brad and I excited is the idea that we're supporting people's dreams and, and their goals. I would say don't be afraid to go for it. Don't listen to your inner critic, to the imposter, as you call it, and just back it up with work. 
we, we're doing everything within our power to give you the tools so you can make your dreams come true. Whether it's with us or with some, some other company, there's great material out there from my, my, my fellow trainers. Just don't be afraid and go for it. Where can our listeners find out more about you and Interpret Train? Oh, absolutely. So you can find us online. Our website is www.interpretrain.com. So that's the word interpret and then uh, the word rain. Uh, so it's kind of like a uh, play on words, interpret and then rain. So it's I-N-T-E-R-P-R-E-T-R-E. A-I-N. So that's our website. We also have a lot of free material um, on our blog, on our website, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on YouTube. So you could definitely find a lot of tools um, in those different uh, spaces. Well, thank you so much, Virginia, for your time. Thank you for sharing your story with all of us and nothing but good juju for you and interpreting. Oh, that's awesome, Mirija. Thank you so much for having us. It, it really means a lot to us. This has been a, a, an awesome opportunity. I'm really, really uh, grateful to have been part of it. How lucky am I? I really do enjoy putting these podcasts together, guys. I truly hope you're enjoying them as well. To find out more about Virginia Valencia or Interpretrain, visit their website at interpretrain.com. Don't forget to check out the show notes for further details on today's episode. There, you can find all the links related to today's show and then some. Also, I'd love to hear your feedback, so let's connect. Find me on Instagram at brand underscore the underscore interpreter or on LinkedIn as Mireya with a Y, Perez, or visit my website at brandtheinterpreter.com. Well, that concludes today's podcast session, guys. But before I go, I'd like to leave you with the following quick story. It's the story of a man that visited the Holy Land. And while he was there, someone explained the difference between the Dead Sea and the very much alive Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea has no outlet. Both are fed by the same source, but the Dead Sea can only receive an inward flow. The Dead Sea is prevented from flowing outward, and the accumulation of salt has killed it. The Sea of Galilee is alive only because what flows in can also flow out. For this man, the metaphor of the Sea of Galilee demonstrates that giving is a necessary function of thriving and feeling alive. By sharing our experiences and therefore our knowledge, we not only help others, we in turn also help ourselves. So tell your story. Brand the interpreter. See you next time, guys. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.